0: You're listening to Just One of the Guys, where I'm almost certain that the package in today's book contains neither Gwyneth Paltrow's head, nor Marcellus Wallace's soul. Hello everyone, and welcome once again to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Podcast Network. Dang. Word. Hi again, my name's Sean Engel, and it's my job on this show, as always, to cover the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, while putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. Guy Gardner is sadly absent from the book, but Kyle Rayner's here, as is Hal Jordan as we're going to be covering Hal Jordan and Kyle Rayner in the fourth annual in the uh, Green Lantern cycle, which hopefully will be a lot better than the prior annuals. Well, the last annual wasn't bad, but this time we're going at year one annual, where we'll be taking at the taking a look at the first year of both Kyle Rayner's tenure as Green Lantern, but also the first year of Hal Jordan as Green Lantern. However, there's a little time-swapping, switching of characters, what have you. It'll be interesting, well, at least I hope you'll find it interesting, but what I hope you'll really find interesting is Green Lantern number 115, which is penned, of course, this time out, by a different writer. Not some uh, hack that we've never heard of, sorry Eric Loop, but one of the great ones, Dan Jurgens. He's come in to write a story that involves Kyle Rayner, Plastic Man, and perhaps one of his greatest creations, Booster Gold, in a story where... There's a package delivered to Kyle's house, and he doesn't know what's in it. It's all good stuff. Dan Jurgens is a great writer, and I can't wait to get to the book. But first off, we're going to take a little break, play a couple of promos, as I usually do. Then I'll read a few emails, and then get right on to the coverage of Greenlander number 115. So stay tuned after break. We'll be right back.
1: bunch of damn dirty apes. It's me, Maury Clawhammer. Don't you recognize me? Of course you don't. I've gone back to my simian roots. Maury Clawhammer is going ape. That's right. Coming soon at 2TrueFreaks.com, it's Planet of the Apes Month. (laughs) Hey, Hey, look at me. I'm peeling a banana with my feet while watching all five of them monkey movies. Now I'm reading a chimpanzee comic while swinging on my swinging tire swing. Woohoo! Then it's toy time when some kid throws me a vintage Mego Doctor Zaius action figure, and I'm gonna put it where the sun don't shine, in front of a whole third grade class, and nobody's gonna bat an eye. Then I'm gonna pull it out and I'm gonna fling it at him. It's a whole month of monkey madness, coming soon at TwoTrueFreaks.com. Check it out. I'm devolving by the second. Or is or it the, the other, other way, around? way around? You've decided to go to a nearby restaurant. You ask the hostess to seat you in a booth. As you sit, you notice an animated conversation among the four seated behind you. They're talking about Star Wars and Doctor Who and something called the Laugh Olympics. These are the people you used to pants in high school, and yet you cannot help listening. Unable to tear your ears away, you realize you've just been sucked into the Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks. Weekly at two truefreaks.com.
0: And we're back. And as we do normally whenever I get emails from you wonderful listeners, I do a little thing that I like to call listener email. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> and since we can't get enough of Michael Bradley, we might as well start out with an email from Michael Bradley. He wrote in with the uh, title, One Million Episodes. And Obviously, this is dealing with DC 1 million. Michael wrote in saying, I just want to congratulate you on being the first host of a weekly podcast to hit 1 million episodes. Producing a show for 1, 000, 9, or 19,000 years in a row is quite an accomplishment. I'm a little behind. The last episode I heard was 106, but I'll catch up eventually. Keep up the great work, Michael. Yeah, check the Two True Freaks ar- archive. Uh, the other, um, what... Nine hundred and ninety nine thousand nine hundred and I can't even read it. I I can't fake it. No, I haven't been doing a million episodes, but I appreciate you writing in for the millionth episode. That was just a barrel of fun. Stephen Lacey was great to have on the show. He did a great job synopsizing DC one million. And to be honest, it was just really a fun read and Morrison being very reverential to the entirety of the DC Universe. Uh, I just dug the heck out of it. So I'm glad you enjoyed the show, Michael, and I was glad I was able to talk to you last episode. I've got another email from Michael, but I'll save that for next time. I'll go into my next email, which is from Robert Ward. There's no subject here, but it starts out, Dear Sean, it's been a while since I emailed you about your most recent episode, number 111, but it made me had to jump on and email ASAP. In said episode, you once again plug the mashup, Iron Lantern, and how your listeners should find a copy if they don't have one. I still hold hold people accountable for that. Go out and find Iron Lantern. Robert continues saying, well, funny thing, the day I listened to episode 111, I actually just read Iron Lantern and decided to email my reaction. This year, I was actually able to attend my first true convention, C2E2. Well, that's cool. Hopefully, you got to see some, some good artists out there, and I know, oh... Tom Harris, uh, the host of Radio Free Asgard, was out there as well, so hopefully maybe you got a chance to meet with him. Going back to the email, he says, where I finally ended up spending way too much on cheap comic books. There's no way that you can spend too much on cheap comic books, Robert, trust me. Establishing the financial theory that cheap books are better books, I'll go with that, I hunted for any books that caught my attention and was lucky enough to I'm sorry, I was luckily enough able to find some really great books, including, uh, including Iron Lantern, for only 50 cents. I'd jump for joy. I would, too. My friend, who was with me, just didn't understand. As a newer trades-only reader, he just rolled his eyes, oblivious to the gold I was holding. The comic, exel- the comic itself was a little silly, with the mash-up names like Happy Kalamaku and Stuart Rhodes, but overall, I too found it to be just a wonderful read. It was a truly fun comic, and it's set up in action, and I don't know why, but seeing Hector, Madam Mask, Slash Star Sapphire, and of course the biggie, Mandarin Estro, always loved that, was just so satisfying that it was almost perfect. I really want to track down some of the other books in the series, since it was the only one that I saw in the whole time. Yeah, if any of these DC Amalgam books are as good as Iron Lantern, I would suggest tracking them down. Even if you have to look at the dollar bins for them, there's got to be some there. But yeah, Iron Lantern again, I can't tell you how much fun I'd had reading that book. But continuing with the email, Robert says, Now, while I'd like to gush about some of the other stuff I got and the cheap books that I bought two weeks prior to another gathering, I, instead I will write only about two more, the ones I specifically blame you for. And he gave me a couple of pictures included to show me what they were like. Number one was a Guy Gardner shirt, which I'm going to have to find me one of these. He said, I saw this at the con program and it instantly made it the, made the very first stop at the convention so I could get one. They say it's the New 52, but all I know is it's one of the best Green Lanterns ever, and that's all that matters. And he has an image of, it's essentially a t-shirt with the traditional Guy Gardner uh, double-breasted vest over it. And it looks pretty cool. I'm i going to have to search out something like this, because my Green Lantern shirt is getting a bit faded. And I really don't feel like buying one of those Big Bang Theory t-shirts that they sell at Hot Topic, because it just doesn't feel right it doesn't feel like i'm getting a shirt that's focusing on green lantern and it's focusing on the stuff that they wear on big bang theory and uh, that's just me but then number 2 he says finally a bit of treasure i don't collect toys but i was really hoping to find at least one reasonably priced action figure maybe a retro action tc superheroes and sure enough towards the end of the day next to hacksaw jim duggan was a toy booth that both that both had three of the four Geo RetroAction DC superheroes, and I had to snatch up a Guy Gardner. Basically, it's Amigo, but not. It only cost me $5? Wow, that's a good buy. <laughs> Sorry, had to interject that. But I'm more than happy to display it on one of my shelves. Guy isn't the most attractive guy out there, but he's cool as hell, I think. I'll have to agree with you. He sent an image of the Guy Gardner retroactive doll, and... His look is a bit New Fifty Two, but it is the classic uniform. The boots—they don't look like moon boots. They've got sort of a belting around it, but everything else—the jacket looks good, the uh, the lantern looks good, the belt around him looks good. His face sculpt looks a little a little bit modern, but it is Guy Gardner, and to get one of those cool sort of you know, not I think they're six and a half inch Mego action figure dolls. It's really good, and the card that that comes on has an image of Jon Stewart, the sort of 70s version of Jon Stewart, Uh, not Hal Jordan, but Kyle Rayner and Sinestro on there as well, and Kyle Rayner looks like the image from, well, the issue number 51 that he came in on, so it's it's some good stuff, Uh, and for five bucks, well worth the price. Anyway, finishing up Robert's letter, he says, and all of this wouldn't have happened if you didn't decide to host a Green Lantern podcast that showcased Kyle and Guy. Your show really made me appreciate the character and turn him into one of my favorite GLs. So, like you said, you are partially to blame." Okay, well, uh, if you need some money for the uh, purchase of the uh, Guy Gardner Mego action figure, send me an email and I'll forward you some Demons of Core contracts so you can get reimbursed. Anyway, Robert finishes up the letter. Keep up the great work, Robert. Well, thank you, Robert, for writing in. I do appreciate it, and I appreciate everyone who emails in. If you want to email the show, of course, the email address is just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. That's how you can get information or images of Guy Gardner shirts, which I'm looking at right now. I have to go find a shirt like this. This is too cool. But thank you all for emailing in, that's going to be it for email this time out, so it is time, as we close up the email bag, or basically I click the X on Gmail, it's time now to go into our coverage of Green Lantern number 115. Green Lantern 115 was cover dated August 1999 and released on June 9th, 1999. It had a cover price of ninety nine US and $3.25 in Canada. The title was The Package, and the writer this time out, rather than Ron Mars, like I said, was Dan Jurgens. The penciler was Mike S. Miller. Inkers was Selim Crawford and Keith Champagne. Colors and separations were by Rob Schwager. The letter was Willie Schubert. Assistant editor was Harvey Richards. Editor was Kevin Dooley. And Booster Gold was created by Dan Jurgens. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner is not having a good day. As Green Lantern, he has to take on groups of armored thugs every other Tuesday, but today he has to do that long before his morning shower and first cup of coffee. As Kyle tries to take down the minions of the supplier, quote unquote, while rushing in cars that were thrown off the bridge he was fighting on, he thinks back to earlier this morning. Stumbling out of his bed in search of his first cup of coffee for the day, Kyle discovers a strange container that suddenly appeared in his apartment. Delivered care of the Blue and Gold Express. The accompanying note tells him to enter his PIN to open it, and after putting in the password of Donna, awkward, Cal gets a disapproving beep from the box. Hoping this is a gift from the secret society of Victoria's Secret models, Cal decides to investigate further after he's had a shower and some coffee. But that is put on hold as the supplier's men burst into Cal's apartment and make off with the container. Enraged due to his lack of caffeine, Kyle rings up his uniform and heads out after the mech suit miscreants. This ends the flashback portion of the book and brings us back to Kyle sinking into the Hudson, along with the cars that were tossed off the bridge. But luckily, the cavalry has arrived to help Kyle rescue the submerged vehicles. Unluckily, the cavalry isn't Aquaman, much to Rob Kelly's disappointment, but Booster Gold and Plastic Man, who quote-unquote, help Kyle in their own. Men. Things look bad for the heroes, so Booster has Kyle create a blinding flash of light to blind the suppliers men. And then the heroes make a tactical retreat. Seemingly victorious, the suppliers men take the container back to their employer. Elsewhere, Booster and Kyle have the actual container in their possession, and after some awkward conversation about Booster and Blue Beetle's appropriation of teleporter technology for their business venture, The two open the container to find something shocking. Over at the supplier's headquarters, the supplier begins to open the recovered container, only to find that it was actually Plastic Man in disguise. Sadly, this doesn't bode well for E. L. O'Brien as the supplier orders his men to kill him. This is the second time in a few months that we've had a Green Lantern story written by someone other than Mars. I know it's coming to the end of Mars' initial run on the book, and I'm hoping that there wasn't any acrimony between him and Editorial, or DC as a whole, thus leading to him moving away from the Green Lantern comics. But, however, I will say having Dan Jurgens write the story is a good substitute. Since Kyle's character has been pretty well established via both Mars and Morrison over at the JLA, other writers can come in and do one of these little one-off stories and not really mess with the overall arc of Kyle's character. He's been pretty established now in the DC Universe, so you don't have to have Mars, who was the initial writer for the character who developed him, be the person always doing it. So, hopefully again, this one-off story, which is really good, isn't a sign that Mars was getting tired of doing the character. But we'll hopefully find out more about that someday later, if I can ever score an interview with Ron Mars. But until that day comes, let's go ahead and take a look at the book. Uh, Starting with the cover, it's a really eye-catching cover. It's taking Kyle, uh, ringing up a bunch of laser pistols, and then firing them at some unseen assailant. The art's here by Jurgens and Austin, and it's actually pretty good. Again, reinforcing my idea that Banks and Austin aren't the best team on the book. My only complaint is that Kyle looks a bit too beefy and doesn't seem to have a chin. I mean, if you look at the way his costume goes, it goes right from the neck up to his head, and his head looks like it's placed on top of it. the costume. It's kind of wonky look, but... Not bad. Uh, like I said, the art with Austin and Jurgens is significantly better than the art I've seen with Austin and Banks, so maybe just the combination of them still isn't working out. Moving into the book, page one. Now, Mike Miller, who did the art for this book, started out doing work for Image in the 1990s with Freak Force by Giffen and Eric Larson and then he went to, on to do some X-Men work over for Marvel before he was tapped to do work at DC. His art style is good, but it definitely has some of that 90s image feel to it, with Kyle's sort of Goku looking like hair and his ring energy looking even more like Goku's hair. It's You can obviously tell there's sort of an anime style to Miller's artwork here in this book. Pages two and three. At least here we get sort of the cover depicted in a different angle as we see Kyle ringing up all these various guns to take down the supplier's minions. It's nice because very often the covers never depicted in the book and also throughout the fight I think Jurgen's really gets Kyle's voice down. Like I've said, Jerkins is an exceptional writer, and Cal's been established enough as a character, so I think Jurgens is able to come in and write this story without you having a real sort of disconnect feel between the characters and the writing of, uh, say, Ron Mars and Dan Jerkins. Uh, the character of Cal's been developed well enough that we know how he would think and speak, and Jurgens does a great job of delivering that in this book. Moving on a bit in the book, on page 7, panel 3, uh, this is the first time I think I've actually seen Kyle with a face full of stubble. And it's it's a nice look and it's a good visual reference to show that he's really not in top form here. That he's been kind of caught off guard and the the artwork here kind of displays how Kyle just probably isn't ready for what's going on, but he's tackling it nonetheless. Page 9, I enjoy... This bit of artwork in the story where Kyle is forced underwater by one of the suppliers jetpack armor wearing coons. He rings up a rebreather to have on his face, but it's kind of integrated into his crab mask, so it's a really cool design. It gives it it gives us some uniformity to the facial design, to the facial design of the mask, rather than him just having a sort of aqualong type rebreather put in his mouth. So I thought that was just kind of a cool aesthetic design. Then moving on to page 10, the artwork gets, at least for me, a bit wonky. The way the perspective is on this page, you're seeing Kyle get up on his bed and walk to his bathroom to get changed. And his apartment is huge. It looks like he walks for a considerable distance from his bed to the wall to get to his bathroom. I mean, maybe it's just, maybe it's just them playing with perspective and whatever. But I wouldn't think that Kyle, an artist, a freelance artist nonetheless, could afford a, an apartment, you know, with this kind of dimensions in New York City. It just doesn't make sense to me. Page 11, pin 2. I know Kyle tries to enter his PIN number in the box to open it up, and his PIN number is Donna, which doesn't make any sense because most pins are numeric numbers, but I guess maybe it's the alphanumeric code that goes along with it, so yeah, but still, not the best choice of codes. Moving on to page 12, we get another example of how no one in Kyle's apartment building should be surprised that Kyle is Green Lantern. I mean, we get a group of jet-powered thugs bursting into Kyle's apartment and no one really bats an eye. I'm assuming that secret identities just aren't really aren't really something that Kyle kind of worries about in this book. Moving on to page 16, it's nice to see Booster Cole in the book, especially since he wasn't being published as far as I know at the time. Plus, it's also good to see him out of his extreme armor that he wore during the early 90s. God, that stuff was awful. Then on page 17, I'm i I'm kind of upset that Plastic Man doesn't really seem to be here for any other reason than to just make goofy faces. I mean, he has his few moments in here, and obviously at the end of the story, him forming in the shape of the box to try and fool the supplier is nice, but yeah, here it's just the artist getting a chance to draw up plastic band doing goofy faces so if you like that then I'm certain you'd like these few panels page 21 panel 7 like I said Booster and Kyle open up the box that was so important and they get a look at it and I can only assume yeah it's Marcellus Wallace's soul so that's what they were transporting that's part of the deal well fix it everyone but then at the end, we get Plastic Man, who is disguised in this box, you know, reveal himself to the supplier, who you know is evil because he's bald, is wearing a cloak, and has a pimp cane. So, yeah, he's he's evil. But you can also tell that he's evil, that he doesn't say, oh, capture in him and torture him. No, he's just like, okay, shoot him. So, it. It definitely sets up a, a nice cliffhanger ending to find out whether or not uh, Plastic Man is going to make his way out of this. So we'll have to find out next time what happens to uh, Plastic Man and what's in the uh, what's in the box. But that is it for the coverage of the issue. But that's not quite it. Before we close up the comic, let's go and take a look at some of the ads we've got in here. Starting in the front inside cover, I guess it was time. Star Wars Episode One was out, and so were the video game tie-ins to them. And the first one was Star Wars Episode One Racer, where you got to do some pod racing against various pod racing foes and various pod races. Yeah, it's not bad. It was a fun game. I remember playing it for the PC. This one, however, is for the Nintendo 64. So I'm not certain if it was as good, but yeah. Pod racing. It's wizard. Then a few pages in, you get the uh, cut-out sprite thing. I think we talked about this in an earlier episode, where you basically cut out the image of of a sprite and the uh, word balloon underneath it, and you place it over your favorite superhero poster, and it's supposed to look like the hero's enjoying a sprite. So, yeah, cut up your comic magazines, kids. That's always good. Of course, it wouldn't be too bad a thing if you cut up your comic magazine, because the next page is for the Adam Sandler movie Big Daddy, which has Adam Sandler and his young child, I guess, whizzing on the door of some door. Never saw the movie, don't really care to, because it's Adam Sandler. A few more pages in we get a very minimalist ad for finally a reason to get up before noon it's the game boy color and this is the very very older version of the game boy color it's still the rectangular boxy one with the single screen but uh the games are in color so uh, you jumped up from the uh monochrome version of the game boy to the uh to the color version so There's that kind of advancement. It's not quite the DS version or the uh, typical Game Boy Advance one with the flip screen, but it's in color now, so there you go. Then the next page is an ad for Three Musketeers candy bars with some very, very almost artman CGI-rendered Three Musketeers, I guess... I vaguely remember these ads and uh, the television advertisements for this, but yeah, it's pretty pretty dated uh, CGI renderings of the Three Musketeers. In fact, I don't know why, but one of the Musketeers happens to be a black guy, which I don't know if Andal- Alexander Dumas wrote that into the story or whether they're just taking a license with him, but it's the uh, ethnically sensible or ethically sensitive uh version of the three musketeers so uh eh, that's that's no problem then again we get another video game ad it's for the playstation infestation the game centipede and it's not your typical you know trackball shoot 'em up uh little centipede drops down into the mushrooms type things it's all 3D and everything, and it it looks interesting. It looks like the concept's kind of the same. You have a little archer or little thing that shoots the centipede as it comes down, and there's mushrooms, except it's more on a... It looks sort of like on a first-person shooter-type plane. Kind of a top-down, maybe 3D first-person shooter-type perspective, but, yeah, it's I guess it's an interesting little take on PlayStation on the... Uh, centipede game on the playstation so eh, might have been neat but then we get an advertisement uh, two-page splash in the middle of the book for star ocean which i guess is one of the first games they say by enix which might be square enix which started to do the final fantasy games i've got to assume it's a uh, rpg looks like very anime version it's primarily for the playstation I've never played Star Ocean, but I actually never really got into the Final Fantasy-type games either, so it looks neat. Nice. But a lot of those games from that era look kind of neat. Then the next ad is another Cotton Milk ad with a uh, Tony Hawks doing a uh, ridiculous upside-down skateboarding thing and the circle uh, verbiage rolling around him, and I guess he's supposed to be doing a flip, so... Tony Hawk with a milk mustache, it's not as awkward as Sarah Michelle Gellar with a milk mustache. Then after that, they get, uh, you can tell that the Matrix has just come out because you're going to start to get ads with all this sort of green filter to the, to the lens that kind of gives the uh, images a sort of, not day for night feel, but the sort of Matrix for non-Matrix feel, if you know what I'm talking about. Everything has this sort of green haze to it. But this one is for Powerade, as it has uh, some guys playing basketball on what looks to be not a regulation-height basketball goal. Then a guy drinking the bright blue Powerade to uh, power him up, because out here, got moves so fresh, they come with a factory smell. Whatever that means. But... Back to speaking of Game Boy Color, we've got an interesting game. It's Who is the Master Spy in Spy vs. Spy? The Mad characters. It wasn't by Sergio Aragonés. I can't remember who did Spy vs. Spy. But I know they were part of Mad Magazine. And since Mad was eventually, I think, bought out by uh, Warner Brothers or DC, it's not unrealistic to have an advertisement for their game in the book. And then, oh lord... It's the new comedy series, uh, about a network run by monkeys called the chimp channel, which was good Lord. How can I describe it? In the late nineties, TBS used to run a series of things that was like, Oh, these chimpanzees or these, yeah, these chimpanzees is in business suits doing these various shows. In fact, they had one called, uh, Tree Watch, NYPD Zoo, and Allie (sighs) McSqueal. Yeah, TBS in the 90s just... Now they're just showing reruns of Family Guy, so I I can't tell you which is worse. But then after that, we get something from DC Direct. It's a snow globe with Batman standing in front of the uh, tombstone of his murdered parents, as you can... Shake the globe around and have snow fall around him. It's it's a nice looking thing. It's sculpted by William Paquette and retailed for seventy nine ninety nine or seventy nine ninety five in the US and one hundred thirty nine ninety five in Canada. There are only three thousand pieces in it. It's a nice little image. It's it'd be kind of a unique snow globe, I guess, so yeah, there there you go with that. And then the letters column, they get a little side ad for the online gaming system, or the online gaming site, Heat, which I think thankfully has nothing to do with the group that wanted to have Hal Jordan brought back into the Green Lantern books. So there you go with that. The back inside cover is an advertisement for Kellogg's Corn Pops, which has a person with a briefcase full of Corn Pops chained to his wrist. If you're that concerned about getting corn pops, maybe you need to seek some seek some professional help or maybe some dietary help. Uh wow. And then the back outside cover is just that silly ad for Coca-Cola again with the IYDK, YDG thing on the bowling ball again. I don't think this flew very well in the time period and... It definitely doesn't now. But not the best ads. You know, at least we got something for the Game Boy Color, so that's kind of cool. We're seeing the little handheld games actually come into the color generation, so neat. But other than that, nothing really spectacular. But hopefully the annual number four of Green Lantern will be spectacular. Can't be any worse than Eclipso or Bloodlines. We'll be getting to that right after these podcast promo messages.
1: are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Hey Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect. Some like Thor or Captain America.
0: Uh, both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already.
1: Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern. Nice. Close. No, this guy is Cosmic Awareness captain marvel almost i mean quasar oh
0: quasar who doesn't love a good quasar
1: tune in to the quantum cast covering all things quasar yes that's right you can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com and on the two true freaks internet radio network
0: yeah that that didn't sound scripted at all did it and we're back and what you just heard there was an advertisement for the new podcast on the street, well, I guess the new podcast on the 2 True Freaks street, The Quantum Cast, hosted by Jeff Fishman and Eugene Hendricks. Yes, a podcast about a cosmic hero with a piece of jewelry which allows him to do incredible power things. That doesn't sound in any way like another show on the 2 True Freaks network. But seriously, all snarkiness aside, you've got to take a listen to this. Uh, Quasar is an interesting hero. He's one of these ones that not too many people know about, you know, and probably you would think not too many people care about. But I'm glad that they're actually taking a look at this, and this is a character that I vaguely remember from – reading when i was a, a child so i've got to take a listen to the show and i hope that you will take a listen to it as well eugene from what i've talked to him the minimal amount sounds like a great guy i have really enjoyed his hammer strikes podcast as well which he did uh one a few months back with uh rob kelly talking about the the uh, very uh well not really controversial but the uh, very revealing movie of swamp thing and by revealing, I mean essentially Adrian Barbeau's boobs. But man, i got to see Adrian Barbeau in that movie again. That'll be. Never mind. Anyway, moving on to the podcast and moving on to the show and to the comic that I'm going to be covering right now, I'm going to be talking about Green Lantern Annual number no. four. Green Lantern Annual number no. four was cover dated in 1995, just. The entire year because it's an annual. Someday I'll get that. The release date, however, was august first, nineteen ninety five, and the cover price was three fifty US, four hundred ninety five Canada, and two pounds fifty in the UK. The title of the book was Shared Lives, the plot was by Ron Mars, the dialogue was by Kevin Ferreira, pencils were by Tom Greinberg and Joe Phillips. Bill Anderson, John Lowe, and Dexter Vine were on the inks. Gene D'Angelo was the colorist, the letterer was Chris the associate editor was Eddie Braganza, and the editor was Kevin Dooley. Parallax, slash Hal Jordan, is doing a little breaking and entering at the house of the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott. Luckily, Alan, in full sentinel regalia, no less, just happened to be at home at the time of the break-in and confronts Hal on what he's doing. Hal says that he didn't want to disturb the Elder Lantern as he makes off with his power battery. Elsewhere in New York City, Kyle Raynor is getting politely nudged into getting to work on an art project from his current girlfriend, Donna Troy. The former Wonder Girl promises dinner and a movie after he finishes his assignment, then departs after giving Kyle a goodbye kiss. Radu comments on how pretty Donna is and how she and Kyle should make plenty of babies because Kyle's father figure... Redu comments on how pretty Donna is and how she and Kyle should make plenty of babies because he's Kyle's father figure in this book, but Kyle says that that'll have to wait as he orders a pair of coffees to go. Cut to Warrior's Bar, where Guy Gardner is reminiscing about the loss of his friend and comrade Kilowog, but Guy's ruminating is put on hold as Parallax appears behind him, demanding his power battery. Guy morphs up some Voldarian weapons to take Hal out, but Parallax delivers a devastating blow to our tatted-up hero, and makes off with Guy's battery as well. Back in Kyle's apartment, he's trying to get into business mode, but drawing pin-up sketches of Donna just seemed a bit more important to him. However, back again with Parallax, he's arrived at the abandoned Ferris aircraft hangar, and placing the stolen batteries on each side of them, he draws the power from both of them. At the same time, Kyle is charging up his ring in order to take the flight around the city to clear his head. However, due to some weird twist of fate, the two lanterns charging the rings at the same time causes them to swap places and times, putting Kyle fighting the Invisible Destroyer from Showcase No. 23, and Hal making out with Alex DeWitt from Green Lantern No. 54. Both parties are confused on how this transfer happened, however Hal might be a bit more aroused than confused as Alex walks out of her bedroom in the most impossible piece of lingerie ever depicted in the comic medium. However, rather than doing the stereotypical Hal thing and tapping dat ass, Hal feigns a fever and departs after giving Alex a friendly kiss on the forehead goodbye. Wondering how all this happened, Hal flies off to try and discover the cause. Meanwhile, Kyle is trying to do the same thing, and as he ruminates near the bay by Coast City, he gets the idea that something went wrong when he used his battery. Allowing the ring to guide him to where this era's Green Lantern battery should be, Kyle eventually arrives at the still-in-business Ferris aircraft and loses the uniform to try and find out where the battery might be. Kyle runs into Tom... phase. Kalamaku, who tells him to watch out for his boss, who is rightfully pissed at him. Kyle shrugs off the comment until he runs headlong into Carol Ferris, who threatens to fire Kyle if he doesn't get to work test piloting the newest Ferris airplane. Kyle then heads into the pilot locker and upon opening his, his assigned locker, he finds just what he is looking for, the Green Lantern power battery. Back with Hal, he's discovering that maybe being Green Lantern in this time isn't such a bad thing, and maybe he should take up Alex on that offer of hot monkey love. Unfortunately, as he enters her apartment, he discovers a nearly unconscious Alex being throttled by the hands of Major Force. Hal lays into the mob menace and ends up shackling Force and some ring construct chains. Hal rushes Valak's side and finds that he arrived just in time to save her from being choked to death. Assuring that his alternate timeline girlfriend is okay, Hal interrogates Force and discovers that the green piece of rock that she w- he was carrying with him was actually Kyle's yet unformed battery. Over at Ferris Air, Kyle is hoping that he can do a little Wizard of Oz bit with the battery to get him home, when he is confronted by the floaty head of one of the Guardians in the Universe, who tells him to take care of the threat that appeared in showcase number 24. Kyle tells the little blue imp to stuff it, and heads off with the lantern in tow. Over at the apartment, Hal is wondering if he should stay with Alex or find a way to return to his own timeline. Alex tries to convince him with a passionate kiss, and that's enough to change Hal's mind. Ready to take on the responsibility of being Green Lantern in this timeline, Hal places his ring to the battery to charge it up. Unfortunately, at the same time, Kyle is charging his, causing the two to do the switch places again thing, and time to revert to the way it was, for both Alex and Coast city Some time has passed, and Parallax and Kyle meet up at Alex's gravesite. The two relate what they would learned about each other during their Freaky Friday swap, and both realize that the tragedies in their lives have defined them both, whether for good or ill. In the end, the two depart, but not before Kyle can leave a single ring construct rose at the tombstone of Alex DeWitt, the love of his life. Okay, I'll have to admit, this was a really great annual. And not just because the previous annuals were not quite up to snuff. This was really a fun read. It was a simple Freaky Friday, vice versa, like father, like son, switch up thing. But it actually kind of worked. And I liked how Ron Mars and Kevin Ferreira kind of took the history of both of the characters and switched them up and played with them a little bit. That's essentially essentially what these year one annuals were supposed to be, a sort of retelling or a going back to the origin stories of these characters and telling them in a different way. Uh, in the Guy Gardner annual, the one that was unfortunately drawn by, oh, Flint Flint Henry, this one had an actual, a better art style, a better look, and a bit better writing. Well, maybe not better writing. I think Bo Smith did a great job in that year one annual, but the artwork definitely here is much better. It does have some sort of that late 90s or mid 90s image chasing type look to it, but it's not as distracting as some other books. Plus, like I said, it references some of the earliest adventures of these two heroes, which was what I assume most of these annuals did. It was a good showing all around. But let's go ahead and go into the notes on this book. The cover, it's probably the most 90s portion of the book. Uh, The characters look very, very stylized, kind of cartoony. In fact, there's one character down at the bottom that I think might be Mongol that looks right out of that sort of Captain Stern era heavy metal type comic. He's just got a really sort of cartoony, goofy look, but... Otherwise, it looks fine. Hal's got Wolverine hair for some reason, but uh, there you go. Moving into the book, you know, I don't know specifically who the artist is, whether it's Grindberg or one of the other artists, but I do like here on this first page, uh, on the second panel, as Parallax enters Alan Scott's house, we see his face reflected in the very shiny... 90s parallax shoulder pads that Hal is wearing, so that's a nice sort of artistic touch that they easily could have, no pun intended, glossed over, but it's a nice look regardless. Well, it's nice that we see the reflection. The Hal shoulder pads are very much of their time. And speaking of characters and big things we get, Alan and his ginormous collar, and I don't know why Alan would be hanging around in his Sentinel-slash-Green Lantern uniform at his house. I mean, most of the time we've seen him in comics when he's been at his house, he's been in regular civilian clothes, but maybe he was just came in from a mission or whatever, but yeah, just him hanging out at his house in his Green Lantern uniform? Kind of strange. Page three, I'm glad that we get to see Donna back in the book. I have missed her character, and I know there was the whole thing of John Byrne wanting to write her exclusively for the Wonder Woman book, so it really is nice to see her on these on this one page all by herself. And I'll give credit to the artist, whether it be Greinberg or, or Phillips. It looks good. They've drawn her to be not only very attractive and very curvaceous, but also very strong. In this one circular panel, she's got very well-defined arms. So she's a strong-looking character, but she doesn't look overly muscled. It's a really good rendition of her. I like the artwork here on these pages. Page five, it's kind of disappointing to me that Guy here is taken out like a chump, but I guess it's to be expected as this is Hal's story. But still, Guy doesn't even get one punch in. Uh, Hal takes him down with a simple beam, knocks him through a window. It's just kind of a disappointing showing for my favorite Green Lantern. Page nine is this splash panel of Hal essentially taking on Kyle's look or Kyle's uniform and doing the body's transfer thing. It looks like someone put a ton of product in his hair because now it's not sort of the well just sort of the combed back type look it's very spiky and like i said almost wolverine and the uh white patches which were obviously there because parallax are now just that much more accentuated so it it is kind of a goofy look for howl's hair but then moving to page 11, I like how they're showing a good amount of continuity with Kyle containing the atomic explosion and then taking down the Invisible Destroyer, which is right out of showcase number 23, which was Hal's second appearance in the uh, Silver Age comics. So nice, nice continuity reference there. And then after that sequence on page 16, we get Hal showing up, essentially where Kyle and Alex would have been in issue 54 of the current Green Lantern title. So it's a nice sort of switcheroo, like I said, which is basically what this book is all about. Page 19. Like I said, Alex here is wearing the most egregious lingerie possibly ever depicted in a comic book. I mean, when they did it in Issue 54, and for research purposes only, and I'm not a perv, for research purposes only, well, maybe I am, the outfit that she was wearing was just bra and panties. You know, she basically dropped her mini-dress and told Kyle to accompany her into the bedroom, which I think Kyle very thankfully did. But here she's got on... This weird two-strapped thing with... It's hard to describe. It's its just something that I don't think would technically work in real life. But this isn't real life. It's a comic, so they can depict whatever. But then, you know, the artwork throughout is pretty good. There's a nice shot of Kyle flying away here on page 20, I think it is. It looks really good. Uh, page 28... Hal comes in and saves Alex from Major Force, which was something Kyle couldn't have done since he was completely away when this was happening. And I'm wondering how does this affect the character of Hal slash Parallax knowing the tragedy that affected Kyle's life compared to the tragedy of the death of Coast City? Does Does this make him think that he could change this as he was parallax this this does this give him the impetus for trying to become a green lantern again and try and not be parallax it's an interesting idea that's thrown forth in this annual which usually as annuals go are pretty much throwaway stories so there was a bit more thought put into this annual and i i appreciate them doing that page 34 again we get more continuity between the books as the guardian of the universe i think this is the first time that the Guardian's ever contacted Hal, tells Kyle about the threat that came up in Showcase 24. So I like that there's more continuity going through this book, which could have been just a throwaway thing. So good on Ron Mars and good on Kevin Ferreira. Then on page 41, it's a nice image of both Hal and Kyle recharging their rings to try and get back, well, Hal wanting to, remain Green Lantern, and Cal hoping that he can get back to where he was. It's an image of both of them recharging the rings that's very much akin to the cover of Green Lantern 52, where both Sinestro and Hal were trying to charge the rings on either side of the page. I think Hal being on the left side and Sinestro being on the right. It was a. It's a nice... They're doing a lot of nice homages in this issue, stuff that they could have easily passed over, but I think works quite well in it. But that's basically all my notes. It was a good annual, far better than some of the ones we've had before, so I hope you guys, if you're interested in Green Lantern books or the Green Lantern annuals, this would be one that I would actually recommend you checking out. But that does it for these books this time out. Next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys, we're going to be covering... The next issue of Green Lantern, number 116, which we find out what happened to Plastic Man, how Booster Gold and Kyle take down the supplier, and, well, just what the heck was in that package. I can kind of tell you it's not Marcellus Wallace's soul, but yeah, you kind of expected that. Plus, we'll be delving into another annual, this time annual number five, which was part of the Tales of the Dead Earth, or Legends of the Dead Earth storyline that ran through the annuals that year. It's got, if I recall, a really good story in it that I can't wait to get to cover. So hopefully you guys will join me back here in seven days for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, I hope you guys have a good weekend. We'll talk to you later. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted by their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up look for me on iTunes just search for just one of the guys podcast or search for two true freaks the numeral two and you can subscribe to either the show or two true freaks there you can also search me on Facebook and now you can actually find me there as it was a requirement of my new contract. but it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little mafia awards group anytime soon Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Stevie Wonder and his song Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours, which can be found on his album The Definitive Collection, which can also be found at Amazon.com. However, if you decide to go to Amazon.com to buy the album or buy the MP3, I would please ask that you go through the link at 2 If you go to the website 2 and click on the Amazon banner at the upper left-hand corner of the page, you'll be transported to Amazon.com where you can buy this album, the MP3, or any other song that you'd like. You can also buy electronics, games, toys, toys, Adult novelty items, I'm certain that's what people have bought there before, and all at ridiculously low prices. Plus, every time you use the link at 2 a little bit of your purchase price goes back to help the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. So, if you're planning on buying music, movies, whatever from Amazon.com, please go ahead and use the link at 2